I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. Now, David, today's topic is a little-known but highly impactful industry of producing worthless and disposable rags with holes in them that people put their arms and necks through. (laughs) Well, well, it doesn't sound very sexy when you put it that way. And what Daniel meant to say is that today we're going to be talking about the fashion industry. This is a topic that some people suggested we look into. And going into this, we knew that it was going to be bad. The business of making clothes is enormous. And As a result, it's going to have some pretty big consequences. As we talked about in our plastics episode, we already know that a huge contributor of microplastics in the water that we drink and the food that we eat comes from these synthetic microfibers that go into the clothing that we wear. But once we started researching this in depth, the scope of the destruction and the harm that comes out of the fashion industry was just beyond comprehension. I'm really excited for this episode because the fashion industry as a whole and the history of it from the first creation in the Industrial Revolution through today really does a great job just concentrating and encapsulating a lot of these topics and themes that we've been discussing so far in this show. Everything from environmental problems to labor to the profitability rant, which we got started on and we really need to explore more depth. Well, it's all here, it's all dramatic, and it's something that we all participate in because we have to wear clothes, I guess. And to get a sense of the scale here, let's just talk about how much we produce. So just in the first 15 years of the 21st century, we doubled the production of clothing. And at the same time, we disposed our clothing much faster than ever before. The average American today throws away about 82 pounds of textile waste each year. And this doubling of production equates to about 80 billion pieces of new clothing purchased each year, which is four times as much as we bought 20 years ago. And by 2030, that production will have increased by 63% to about 102 million tons worth of garments each year, which is the equivalent of 500 billion t-shirts. These numbers are crazy. I'm not somebody who, I mean, maybe I'm not qualified to talk about everything we're discussing today because I'm not particularly, uh, how would you say, fashionable. I buy a couple of shirts a year, if that, and, and maybe a pair of jeans. But 500 billion t-shirts equivalent in a year. I mean, by 2030, there's going to be, what, 10 billion people on Earth if trends continue? Eight and a half billion. 10 billion by 2050, I believe. That's over 50 shirts per person. That's insane. Yeah, well, I mean, it kind of makes sense when you start to think about it. You know, you go to a basketball game, you get your free T-shirt. You go to the latest retail store and you can pick up your T-shirt for $5 a pop. You wear them for a week or two. The style has now changed. You go back and you buy another one. And for women, it's pretty easy to find a trendy dress for less than $25. And I suppose the fact that these clothing is made much cheaper now and is almost designed to fall apart and be thrown away exacerbates this problem quite a bit. And this cheap disposable production of clothing and the rapidity at which it gets produced is something we're going to talk about as a major shift in the way this business works. But following along this idea of just the scale of this production, well, along with this massive output of garments comes labor and environmental consequences. Right now, it's estimated that about one in six people that are alive in the world today 
are working in the fashion industry in some capacity, which makes it the most labor-intensive industry on the planet. And about 10% of those employees are located in Bangladesh, something that we're going to be talking about and why that is. That's right, Daniel. And actually, a large number of these laborers are children between the ages of 5 to 14. Well, David, actually, this is something that kind of I was embarrassed to realize is because I kind of went into this thinking that we live in a modern, technologically advanced society. Surely something as common as a t-shirt is being just 3D printed somewhere, right? In a technologically advanced factory. With a blockchain connected printer, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, no, I really thought like, surely all this clothing that's all around us isn't handmade. Well, Daniel, you would be wrong. Very wrong. It turns out that the production of these clothing is about as low tech as it gets. And of course, you may have heard the common phrase going around that the fashion industry is now the second most polluting industry on earth. And how we determine that is through a number of factors, not least of which the business accounts for 10% of global carbon emissions. And it's one of the biggest consumers of global water supplies. Even when you use more sustainable inputs like organic cotton, a single t-shirt can use up to 5,000 gallons of water during its production. But before we go into that, can we talk about for a second how this industry has shifted over the past couple decades? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really important point to explore, especially with, as we've discussed, the shift in how many of these textiles are ultimately just thrown away. The scale of this production, the scale of the environmental destruction that comes as a result, it's all been expanded and leveraged by a radical shift in the way this industry functions over the past couple of decades or even less. And the first is the way that trends have changed. So as we discussed in Designing Deception, David, the post-war era in the 40s and 50s brought new challenges to industry as a whole. We had all these factories fueled by the war effort that were geared up to produce a lot of stuff, but we didn't have the massive demand anymore that you get from a wartime effort. So rather than scale back production, public relations men like Edward Bernays, advertisers, investment bankers, all these people helped encourage the national shift to a consumerist mindset so that people would buy more, dispose more, and buy more again. We actually went and used a tool called Google Ingram, which charts out on a graph how much uh, words appear in books, newspapers, in this massive library of text that Google has scanned going back hundreds of years. And uh, one of the words that I put in, I was comparing the garment industry, the textile industry, and the fashion industry. And I wanted to see when those words started coming into vogue and being popularized. And as Daniel mentioned, the appearance of fashion industry as a term to describe this clothing production, it really started appearing at the end of the 30s. And from there, took off following World War II and is slowly creeping up at an exponential rate through today. This correlates strongly with the use of advertising to create this industry. Before that, the words to describe clothing was simply boring terms like textile and garments. And as you go back farther, you can correlate this with the Industrial Revolution, with the introduction of uh, the sewing machine. That's when you started seeing the clothing industry take off. And it really graphs really well with the shifts in this industry and our mindset about it. Okay, so post-war, you had the need to create a consumerist economy. So the idea of fashion and some kind of creative component of the clothing that you wore got introduced. And you used to have fashion seasons. You'd have the fall collection or the summer collection where models would showcase the latest designs. And then the clothes coming out would be inspired by these themes until the next year's season replaced them. 
And this was all a huge shift in the way that we bought clothes, if your starting point is 1950. But because our economy is built on the assumption of indefinite growth, once business has grown to a certain level, well, you don't just stop. You have to push the boundaries into new frontiers. You have to keep going, get people to buy more. And to do that, you have to change consumer patterns and lifestyles, which is why today we don't have four seasons. We have a minimum of 12. And with some brands, trends come and go every single week. The time it takes for a garment to go from design to the retail store racks can be as little as three weeks. But to get people to buy enough clothes to support this increased scale of production, well, business had to offer clothes at ridiculously low prices and encourage the rapid disposal of them once they've been bought. This is why trends are so short. If the shirt you bought a week ago is already out of style, well, it's time to go buy a new one. What's the big deal when it's only $10? David, I had an epiphany when researching this topic, and this really highlights and finally explains why I hate shopping for clothes. And one of the things that has confused and frustrated me for over a year now, I have a pair of shorts that I bought about a year ago at a popular cheap retail store, and I like them. They fit really well. And when I find something that fits, I want to stick with it and possibly get an identical pair so I can have, you know, in this case, a blue pair and a tan pair of shorts. So I kept going back to this clothing brand to try and find its identical pair of shorts in a different color, but I could never find it. There would be similar clothing, but it, it wouldn't fit right. It would be a little bit different style. It drove me crazy. I would even go online to this brand's online store, but online they'd have so many different options and none of them had unique identifiers. So I could never be sure if they were the same. And like I said, this drove me mad. And I think, why is it so hard to find these shorts? Why does this brand not identify what they are? Well, now I finally realized that these pair of shorts were probably part of a single order that was fulfilled once. It was delivered to that store for a week and then it disappeared, never to be seen again. There is no twin brother to my pair of shorts because everything being pumped into that store is constantly being redesigned and replaced, sometimes daily. It's heartbreaking, Daniel. I'm really sorry you couldn't find the perfect <laughs> pair of short shorts. So if anybody knows where to find Daniel's short shorts, please let us know. Why are you just assuming that they're short shorts? Oh, I know. I know they are. <laughs> And as tragic as your story is, Daniel, the process that enables stores to constantly have these cycled out styles and constantly switching stocks, well, it's actually really complicated and impressive from a supply side standpoint, I guess, if you want to take the human element out of this. But to allow this increased production, business had to shift labor around just a little bit. So for illustration, in the 1960s, 95% or more of all the clothing Americans wore was made in America. Today, it's down to only about 2%. And now you ask, how did that happen? Well, uh, the globalization of the economy happened, which basically means if you're a brand, you find the lowest cost possible. You ask local factories to produce your product at dirt cheap prices. And if they say they can't, you just threaten to take your business somewhere else. And I want to talk about how this labor supply chain works, David. But First, let's expand a little bit on this fact that our clothes are so dependent on human labor. It really is surprising how little of this is automated. So let's take a pair of designer jeans, for example, okay? So once these huge rolls of raw denim are delivered to the sewing house, a person will cut the rolls into big squares and then make them into piles. Strips of paper with outlines of different jean parts will get laid on top of these piles. And then people come over and manually saw the denim into the component parts of the jean. These components are then delivered to workers that are sitting at sewing machines 
and they immediately get to work sewing this pair of jeans together. Now, someone else might sew the buttons and the brand labels on, and if these jeans are going to have some designer effect, like those crease lines you see, well, someone has to physically draw those on. For sandblasted jeans, someone is going to hang these jeans up one by one and then use a special hose to spray sand at the jeans until they have the right look. David, have you heard of stonewashing before? Uh, Do they chuck jeans down mountainsides? (laughs) No. To get a pair of jeans to look, quote, stonewashed, what would you guess that process might look like? Uh, I don't know. Do you wash them with stones? David, this time you're right. Okay, a person throws a pile of jeans into an industrial scale washing machine and then picks up about 120 pounds worth of stones or rocks and then dumps those in with the jeans. A couple hours later, after the cycle is finished, they fish the jeans out and there you go, stone washed jeans. You know, that's basically the same thing I used to do when I was a kid and I got this rock tumbler and, you you know, it makes those like polished smooth rocks. And yes, I was a big nerd. And uh, you just like you put a bunch of rocks in there with other rocks and you spin it around and then your rocks come out smooth and stone washed. So uh, anyway. So the point I'm trying to make here, David, is that as ridiculous as stone washing a pair of jeans is, there's human labor involved at every step of the way. And because of this, You cannot get a t-shirt that's been manufactured and shipped halfway around the world to sell at a $5 price point with 82% profit margins, by the way, without squeezing the wages of that human labor. Yeah, that's right, Daniel. So there's so much labor that goes into producing every single piece of clothing that you wear, whether it's a shirt, whether it's pants, whether it's underwear, it all takes a lot of effort and a lot of manual human labor to create. And as we know, labor is expensive. So the savings have to come from somewhere. A 2012 study that looked at 50 major apparel companies found that the cut make trim level, that's this process that Daniel just mentioned, 98% of companies do not provide a living wage to their garment workers. Which means they don't make enough to support their basic needs, food, shelter, education. The Institute for Global Labor and Human Rights found that women sewing NBA jerseys that will eventually sell for as much as $140, well, they themselves make less than 25 cents per garment. And if that's not bad enough, 250 million children between the ages of 5 to 14 are forced to work in these developing country sweatshops. And to put that number in perspective, that's one out of every eight children on earth. That's a lot of labor. There's a lot of people out there, David, that will try to tell us that the sweatshops that these companies provide in these developing countries are offering these workers a way out of poverty and giving them a better alternative to whatever life they would otherwise have. But it sounds a little bit to me when 98% of these workers don't make enough money to provide basic needs for themselves and a significant portion of them are child labor. It sounds a little bit like slavery to me. I really hate this argument. I hear it all the time. And it's something that the IMF and the World Bank constantly repeat that goes hand in hand with their extreme level of poverty arguments, which are something we're going to explore in depth at some point. And maybe I'll touch upon just a little bit here. And the efforts of these organizations to quantify all gains in society really have done a terrible job in illustrating problems, in making people feel good about something that is actually a net bad. So let me look at this just real quick. So like you mentioned, there's almost no one that's paid a living wage in this industry. But even more than that, there are minimum wages in a lot of these nations, but even those are ignored by a lot of these producers. In some places, as much as 87% of women aren't even paid the minimum wage. 
and not even mentioning all the other problems they face in the workplace, which we'll explore later. But this is already a huge problem. Those children who are working, maybe not against the law of some of these nations, well, they're working in these factories instead of getting an education, which puts a damper on their future earning possibilities, as well as dooming them to a life of work in these sweatshops until they die. But people say, you know, oh, it's okay. They're getting paid. They choose to work here. No one is forcing them to be like this. There can't possibly be slaves. That's the argument I always hear, right? Mm -hmm. But let's explore that for just one second. So slavery, as we think about it today, is always couched in the chattel slavery of the United States. That is the cotton fields of the American South. The reason that the Civil War happened. And yeah, this is the worst form of slavery that's probably ever existed in human history. People were locked up. People were literally chained. They were beat. They were separated. Our own uh, George Washington was famous for pulling the teeth out of his slaves. It was a horrible, horrible industry is what I'm going to call it here. Uh, And there are more slaves, functional slaves today than ever before. We're going to devote a whole episode on this at one point. And while slavery exists today at still a grand scale, this wage labor that we're talking about here usually isn't grouped into that. But let's explore the history of slavery for just one second. I just want to illustrate how this is actually very similar to slavery as it has been throughout history. So let's jump back to ancient Greece for just one second. I know we're getting off topic, but... Ancient Greece? So we look back to the the Greeks as a shining beacon of what we want Western civilization to be, of democracy, of education, of the arts. What we want fashion to be. (laughs) Yeah, let's go back to the toga. I agree. Well, slavery was also common in many of the states of Greece. But say Sparta, for example, their slaves actually had a lot of freedom. And if I was a slave owner, and most people were... You were basically responsible for your slave and their family. That meant providing housing. That meant making sure they were fed and happy. And if you were to beat or hurt your slaves, if they weren't provided for, well, then people would come and take them away from you. You would get disciplined by the community and you were considered a person. Let's fast forward to today. People aren't able to work enough to have food. They have to work 18 hours. They live in tiny little slum shacks because uh, that's all they can afford. On their $2 a day wages at the IMF celebrates as out of extreme poverty. This is functionally slavery. And the big thing that we link with slavery is like, well, you know, they could stop working at any point. They could leave. They could move somewhere. But is that really true? Sure, in our Greek example, those slaves were bound there. They couldn't leave. But at least they had everything provided for. Functionally now, in places like Bangladesh, these people can't leave. How can you afford to go somewhere else? You can't. You're too busy working to try and survive. You are a wage slave. And that is no different than slavery across all of human history, except compared to the very extreme, horrible examples that America set with its chattel slavery. This really is no different. And this is a global problem. What was the stat you said, Daniel? How many people were working in this industry, in this functional wage slavery? One in six globally. That's a lot of slaves. And that's not even considering the people bought and sold on markets, which still happens in open air markets in places like Libya today. Like I said, we're going to explore this in more depth in a future episode, and I really don't want to just gloss over this point, but there are more slaves now than ever before in human history. And that's not even counting people like this trapped in an industry that abuses their labor, that takes advantage of them, and turns them into functional slaves. That's pretty heavy, David. Whether or not slavery is involved with this industry is something we can certainly talk about. But why don't we take a step back for a second to look at how this supply chain works in this industry and some of the impacts it has on the environment. And we can maybe also touch on some of these labor issues. And of course, the supply chain as a whole of the fashion industry is extremely complex. It's really hard to unravel. 
there's so many inputs, so many outputs, and they're coming from different countries of origin. But if we look at it very generally, we can think of it in terms of what you start with is the raw material. And this is usually the cotton that is grown to produce the fibers or plastics. Or in terms of synthetic clothing, it's the plastic that you're creating. And then these raw materials get shipped somewhere and compiled into more usable materials like fabrics. And these fabrics are then treated by things like dyes and other chemicals to achieve color or texture. And then these fabrics are sent to basically the manufacturing processes and the sewing factories that will then compile these fabrics into the clothing that we wear. And of course, then you enter into the consumer use and the disposal side of this supply chain equation. So let's start first with the raw material, the very first step in the supply chain. And one of the most important raw materials is cotton. And so you may not think of the fashion industry, David, in terms of land use and in terms of growing things, but it's one of the biggest drivers of cotton growth around the world. The plant is grown, the cotton gets harvested, it gets spun into yarn, that yarn gets weaved into fabric, like we talked about, and then it gets sent to these factories. And cotton is such a great example of the agricultural and environmental destruction that's being wrought by this industry because it encompasses a few different components, the water use, land use, chemical inputs, and the human suffering that goes along with all of this. So let's look at water use. Currently, the fashion industry uses up about 80 billion cubic meters or 32 million Olympic swimming pools per year of water. And that use will increase another 50% over the next 12 years. And because we will be facing a major shortfall at that time in terms of the global water supply and the global demand, it means that some of these water stress in big cotton growing countries like India or China, they might have to choose between providing drinking water and satisfying the fashion industry. And as you might expect, it takes a tremendous amount of land to grow this cotton and other crops, which is land that will compete with food crops and other important uses. The fashion industry even harvests trees from forests in order to create cellulosic fiber. And this industry is on track to expand their land use by 35% during the same period that global food needs will require a 60% increase in agricultural production. And David, in our industrial agriculture episode, we did touch on the chemical inputs to just the crops that we grow for food. Well, cotton itself is actually one of the biggest users of these chemicals. While only 2.4% of the world's total cropland consists of cotton, it consumes over 10% of all chemicals used in agriculture and 25% of all insecticides. And part of the reason for this is the genetic modification that goes on with cotton that create what are known as Roundup-ready species. They're a little bit more resistant to the chemicals that we're spraying on our fields, which allows you to, instead of just spot treating the land for certain weeds, because this cotton is more resilient, you can just fly over and spray insecticides, spray herbicides in mass, which of course, as we touched on, damages the soil, gets into drinking water, all these types of problems. And of course, associated with these problems is going to be the human element, the human suffering that goes along with not just this pollution and use of resources, but directly the farmers that have to deal with this plant and some of the pressures put on them to produce. And like we saw in the human suffering of the slave industry of the South and the cotton that went along with that, well, it continues today in the farmers around the world, but especially in India. So farming is expensive, something we've discussed in the past and will continue to discuss in future episodes. It costs a lot of money to have land, to plant crops, to water it, to fertilize it, 
to treat it with this Roundup or whatever other pesticides you decide to use. And ultimately, to harvest it, cotton's an intensive crop to harvest. And that's expensive. So many farmers have to take out loans to pay for this. And they get caught in vicious debt cycles, things we've talked about in the past. And recently, this has been exacerbated by the microloan industry. Maybe you've heard of uh, these loan programs that they pitch it as charity, which I don't really know how it works because normally when I give to charity, I'm giving money away. I don't expect somebody to pay it back. But <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. I remember when this microloaning concept came out, there were actually places online where you could invest your money and they would direct it to these microloan programs and they'd tell you, hey, not only are you making money, but you're also doing a wonderful thing for these poor people who don't have access to finance and you're providing them this loan, they can start their small business. And it was really couched in terms of, hey, you're doing a good thing in the world. And by the way, you know, you're going to be able to make a 12% return on your money or whatever it was. Well, I, I mean, they're not all based on returns like that. I mean, 12% is crazy. That's this boarding on usury. But some of these have like very low interest rates um, or, or, or equivalently no interest rates, but they have to be paid back. But a lot of people can't and they default or they ultimately kill themselves because of it. Microloans have been tracked with a dramatic rise in suicides and linked directly to the suicides of these farmers. But it's not just microloans. It's some of these aid programs, the UN, USAID. These are all setting aside money in these loan programs to these farmers. They can't pay them back and they ultimately kill themselves. India just saw a dramatic march on their capital by hundreds of thousands of farmers complaining about this, complaining about their conditions. And the Indian government said, we hear you, we understand, but nothing is being done at the moment. The farmers were sent back home. And just to put this in perspective of how big of a problem this is, in the past 16 years, a quarter of a million farmers, 250,000 people have committed suicide over this problem. Just in India. And this happens all around the world. It's most visible in India because there's a lot of tracking of these deaths uh, and they're more willing to report them as suicides than a lot of other nations are. But it is a serious problem. And this fashion industry is the one ultimately exacerbating it. And I know you said farming is expensive, David, but it's not because it's inherently expensive. Some of these companies make it that way on purpose. There are companies, for example, we mentioned how a lot of this cotton is engineered genetically to be resistant to Roundup. Well, the companies that... Let's name and shame Monsanto. We're talking about you. We're talking about Monsanto. Sure. But I'm sure there's other companies that are doing this too. But Roundup is owned by Monsanto. It is their personal license. So Monsanto creates these seeds that are genetically modified. And because they're patented, the company can set their own price for them that farmers have to pay and usually go into debt in order to do it. But then in addition, the farmer has to go into debt in order to afford the pesticides and the chemicals that he has to mass spray these fields and oftentimes breathing in these chemicals, which adds a, a medical cost to this down the road. But because these crops are so chemical dependent, it destroys the soil. And that initial boost in yield that you get from using these chemicals, well, because the soil is now destroyed, that yield starts to plummet. Farmers can't pay back the loan to Monsanto. They can't pay back the loan to buy these pesticides. And now the company comes and says, your land is now our land. And that's probably the point in which the farmer goes into his fields, drinks a bottle of Roundup, and is found a day later. Now, glyphosate, this stuff is serious. This is Roundup. This is what they put on everything. And it is uh, repeatedly being blocked by the FDA to look into the health effects of it. But it's very likely linked with a lot of brain problems, intelligence things. But Monsanto won't let them do anything. And Monsanto is being bought out by Bayer right now. So they're going to be. Oh, awesome. So uh, so Bayer can produce the drugs to cure all the illnesses that we get from their... 
Yeah. And the reliance on chemicals like Roundup aren't just in cotton, but also in dye houses and tanneries where leather is processed, and they result in major health problems for humans. The places where these dyes are produced, water is contaminated with chemicals because it's just simply dumped into local rivers and freshwater reservoirs. People that live in and around where this effluence is dumped develop fatal health problems. Children are born with birth defects and brain damage, and oftentimes parents of these children have no choice but to slowly watch their children die. The same thing happens near tanneries where leather is processed. Kampur, India is a big leather region. And every day, up to 50 million liters or 13 million gallons of chromium-contaminated wastewater is poured out and makes its way into drinking water and into the very agricultural soil. As a result, many locals develop jaundice, liver cancer, and other fatal illnesses. But let's not forget the argument that these sweatshops, these dye houses, these tanneries are providing the locals with valuable alternatives to living that they just wouldn't have otherwise. And David, I want to talk next about the supply chain. Once we get past the agricultural raw inputs, once we get past the dyes and the making of the fabrics, I want to get to the part where we're doing the actual manufacturing, because I think it really shows how these financial pressures built into the system create so many problems. So once we've taken that cotton, we've spun it, we've weaved it, we've dyed it. Well, now we send this fabric to the factory that's in Bangladesh or India, Pakistan, Turkey, China, Eastern Europe, wherever. And everything up to this point, excluding the consumer use and disposal, will contribute the most in terms of the environmental destruction, pollution, and health effects. But this second manufacturing half of the supply chain will now contribute the most in terms of human rights abuse, human suffering, and exploitation. So before we go into specifics on what that exploitation looks like, let's examine how the supply chain is set up. So you start with your big brand retailer that's selling the t-shirts and the pair of jeans or whatever. Well, they have purchasing agents and those agents are responsible for flying around the world and making deals with factory owners to deliver X number of garments at Y price. And the agent knows that if the retailer is going to sell that t-shirt for $4.99 or $19.99 at that 82% profit margin, Well, given the cost of raw materials, the transportation, and all the other associated factors, this agent has to find a factory willing to make a million of those t-shirts and sell them back at 20 cents a piece. Well, the factories that can actually promise that type of price are going to be in areas with no regulation, no labor rights, no health and environmental standards, the things that might add to the cost of manufacture. That's where the agent goes. And what I find interesting, David, is that the factory the agent ends up doing a deal with is often not the one that will do most of the production. It's just the one that appears to have good standards. Mm. This is where a big system of subcontracting and so-called shadow factories comes into play. This original factory promised a million garments at 20 cents a piece. But in reality, it can produce 80,000. So they have to call others in the area they know and subcontract out the rest of the work. But because the original factory is getting 20 cents from the retailer, it agrees to buy from the subcontractor or shadow factory for only 10 cents per garment. And the only way to make this work is to cut cost by cutting corners. This means slashing worker wages, of course, but also skimping on things like bathrooms, safe buildings, and anything that might add to the cost. But I wanted to know, why does this happen? Why can't the original factory just say, well, we can't produce t-shirts at 20 cents and pay our workers at the same time? 
Well, that's easy. The agent would just go somewhere else and find someone that could. Well, yeah, exactly. But it's not just that they would go to another factory. They might go to another country. And this is something the government doesn't want. They depend on the international trade just as much as the individual worker depends on a decent wage. Exactly. And so what this ends up meaning is that governments themselves will support this system. And there are financial incentives by these governments to keep these factories producing. One thing the government will do is offer cash credits to companies for reaching a certain export size, which encourages factories to accept orders they can't possibly fulfill. And on the banking side, financial institutions will make loans to these factories not based on what they can actually produce, but on the size of the sales orders that they can make. And so when those subcontractors skimp on things like wages, they skimp on safe building standards, terrible things can happen and terrible labor conditions result. You might remember in 2013 of hearing about a tragic building collapse in Bangladesh, killing over a thousand fashion industry workers. This was an enormous tragedy that got international attention and really started to highlight some of the labor practices going on in Bangladesh and in the fashion industry as a whole at the time. People began looking at factories, realizing they were cutting corners on all these labors, and even the buildings themselves being unsafe. This Rana Plaza building collapse, as it's known, really started to look like a promising turn for the fashion industry, and that things were going to get better from here by learning from this tragic loss of life. But here we are five years later, and really little has changed. And in addition to these safety conditions, there's a lot of sexual harassment that goes on, of course. In India, women who try and defend themselves against sexual harassment are often beaten and forced to work over time, or simply terminated. And in China, 70% of women in Guangzhou factories claim to have been sexually harassed and feel they have no option to escape the bad treatment. And as we started to mention a moment ago, the reason they feel they have no option to escape is that the government is complicit in this. They support this system by actively refusing to enforce labor and safety standards. And when these workers try and collectively ask for better conditions, well, the government sides with factory owners in dramatic fashion. In 2015, 8,000 garment workers in Cambodia went on strike to demand better treatment and better wages. Police confronted them with deadly force to break them up, killing at least five people. What were they asking for? Some unreasonable salary or crazy vacation time? No, <laughs> it's $160 a month. That's less than $2,000 a year before taxes. Basically nothing. This is such a great example of how these international pressures pervert the whole system, David. The governments want the trade, which is only possible through factories that exploit their workers. So when these workers try and ask for a little dignity, 150 bucks a month, that will help them feed their families, the government sends police in who side with the factory workers. They kill a handful of strikers and make sure that business as usual continues. And the introduction of the police into this equation really raises some questions if you try to fit police into the traditional narrative of what their function is, that is to protect people and fight crime. Because in this situation, not only are police not enforcing laws and regulations that might be in place to protect workers, they are actively oppressing people asking for those basic standards to be enforced. If the purpose of police is to fight crime, then how do we define crime in a modern society? Because apparently it's a crime to protest against unfair work, but it's not a crime to force people into slavery, making them work in unsafe conditions, denying them basic things like bathrooms, and underpaying them so they cannot even provide the basic necessities of life. And if you think these crackdowns on protests are something that only occurs in developing nations, well, you need to look at home. 
Here in the U.S., dozens of states have police lobbying groups working with their state legislators to introduce bills that criminalize protest, that criminalize covering your face, that criminalize blocking highways, that criminalize delaying and impacting business, effectively making it illegal to complain. And this raises questions. It may be true that police are in the business of protecting people, but who do they protect? And they may be in the business of fighting crime, but who is defining crime? And like you pointed out, David, these questions are not unique to these developing countries. They just become more obvious the closer you get to the pure source of the systems that support modern society. In the United States, the business of policing has always been about protecting those in power. In fact, modern policing evolved in the American South from night watches and slave patrols. These were groups set up to make sure that blacks stayed home or didn't leave their master's plantations. In London, modern policing was modeled after direct military control of colonist populations. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, police did not even ostensibly function to fight crime, but were directly controlled by political bosses to extort protection money from local business, manage illegal businesses like gambling, and to make sure that those in power stayed in power by directly overseeing voting polls, beating up people that did not vote a certain way, and even tampering with votes themselves. And they were incentivized to do this by cash and other bribes, but also from the knowledge that if their boss lost election, the new one would fire everyone on the police force and replace them with his own agent. This, once again, maybe sounds like some developing nation, but this is New York City. This is Chicago. This is the developing American police force that has emerged into what we see today. And it has me thinking and wondering what is right in terms of our crime, in terms of the laws we have, Is it okay to protect a thing, something that doesn't have any effect on someone else's life, by punishing human life? Maybe that's a question that we need to explore in more depth in a future episode. Well, David, maybe we got a little bit off topic talking about police. And I think the real issue is when are police officers going to update their wardrobe? Am I right, David? You're right, Daniel. And this is actually something I thought about in a lot of depth. Uh, And it sounds silly, at least at first, but I really, truly believe that all police uniforms should be pink. What? Pink. Pink police. Well, I wouldn't want to be a police officer. Well, there's a lot of reasons why. I, I mean, uh, so the dark blue traditional police uniform, it's difficult to see. Um, you can blend in. People don't notice you. And, and that's bad because a lot of what police do is preventive policing. They walk around and by being present and seen, it discourages crime. But if they're hard to see, you know, well, it's not working. But a bright pink uniform, that would help uh, make them more visible. And beyond just the policing component of this, it's also a safety factor for police officers. So, in fact, the majority of police injuries and deaths aren't from suspects. They're not from gunfights or something like that. They're merely getting struck by vehicles and car accidents. And most of that is because police officers are difficult to see when they're wearing their traditional blue garb. Switching to pink police vehicles and pink police uniforms would help drastically with visibility and very much cut down on police deaths. Pink is a common color. There's been a lot of studies done that show that when people are interacting with pink, they're a lot more calm. And so contrast that with the very tactical blue and black uniforms that police wear nowadays, and it sort of ups the situation in in, in how tense it is instead of uh, letting it down and and allowing a more peaceful resolution. And then there's a ripe possibility for marketing. You could tie this in with the Susan G. Komen Foundation, or if I'm NYPD and I want to market myself because everyone's coming in and buying, you know, NYPD hats and stuff. How much more iconic would you be if NYPD was New York's pink police department? 
there's so many reasons. I I think pink garments would probably be cheaper uh, to save a lot of money. This is a something I'm very serious about, but uh, now we're way off topic. You're right. That's something interesting to think about for sure. And to steer us back on topic, we did talk a little bit about the supply chain, but there's one aspect of this I think we should just briefly touch on, and that's the end of a garment's life. Most of them honestly just wind up in a landfill, but there has been a big market for used clothing over the years. Donations would make their way to developing countries, and even entire industries would pop up to take used clothing and turn them into other products like relief blankets or disaster victims. There's a region in India, for example, that used to be the world's largest recycler of garments made of wool, and it produced cloth used in disaster relief blankets. It used to make about 90% of the blankets used for relief globally. But because of this new business structure, this recycled market cannot compete with new production. A recycled blanket might cost $2, but China is now producing brand new polar fleece blankets at a price of $2.50. So now, instead of focusing on recycled material, taking this wool and making blankets out of it, these same factories in India are rejecting the secondhand garments in favor of switching to the production of new synthetic microplastic producing <laughs> blanket production. That's efficient. But it's not just this rejection that's a problem, but the wholesale donation of clothes and importation of very, very cheap garments from used clothing into developing nations, especially in Africa, has ruined local industries. So where before I could have survived as a garment maker, as a tailor, as a seamstress, now when this clothes comes in, well, there's already tons of product out there. It's super cheap. Even organizations like Tom's that purports to do lots of good with you buy one pair here, they send one pair over there. Well, that's destroyed local economies and put hundreds of thousands of people out of work and wiped out a whole generation of knowledge about clothing production. And there's so much clothes going out to these places. The t-shirts, the pants, well, they're just piling up into huge mountains of unwanted fabric. Okay, so we've gotten most of the facts out of the way. Uh, we talked about a lot of things on the side. We got distracted a couple times, but uh, we really want to tie in and talk about a couple of very broad scope concepts in this last half of the show. And to do that, I need to sort of take one point and touch on some of the things I've already mentioned, but tie in this overall history of the fashion industry. And again, it wasn't called the fashion industry back when we're discussing here, but the textile world, garment, clothing manufacturing, and up until the modern day fashion as we see it now. And it's always been a dirty, bloody industry. Like we mentioned with cotton and the slaves, it kicked off the Industrial Revolution. So the first things that people were producing and using this excess energy for was mostly textile production. So the Industrial Revolution, which led us down this path of climate change, it got kicked off by a need to produce clothing cheaply. And that need to produce clothing cheaply is the problem that has plagued this industry since its inception and continues to cause the suffering, this environmental damage through to today. And that's environmental damage of climate change with the kickoff of the Industrial Revolution through the pollution and carbon use that happens today, as well as the labor sufferings and automation. We talked about how much manual labor goes into clothing, and it is a lot. But it used to be entirely handmade. Looms were done by hand. Everything was stitched. But as you start adding more tools, that is large mills, industrial scale sewing machines, people who could take a piece of clothing and make it from scratch, well, they started losing their jobs. These very skilled artisanal workers, they were seen as useless. People couldn't afford their labor. They were too expensive. And they got angry. So the UK, where the Industrial Revolution in textiles kicked off, well, a lot of people were put out of work by this because their labor was simply too expensive for the industrial scale production of clothing, and people reacted badly to it. 
You might have heard this term before, ludite. It's an insult that we have today that refers to somebody who's afraid of technological change, that they want to be some sort of cave person stepping out of society because the tech is too scary or confusing. Cave person. There's an economic fallacy called the ludite fallacy based on this idea of mocking these people. And who the ludites were were a group of artisanal workers, very skilled garment manufacturers who realized they were put out of work, who were kicked out because they cost too much, and led a revolt against these mill workers, against the UK, to try and get their places back. And their name turned into an insult that we still have to today. And the Luddite fallacy, by the way, is the simple observation from economists that technological innovation does not, in fact, cause a loss in labor, ultimately. That the changing amount of supply from the reduced inputs increased demand and thus spread more labor across the economy. And it's held mostly true throughout time, but I think that as we get into a more thorough automation in the coming decades, as computers start replacing a lot of our uh, normally white-collar jobs, that this is going to completely fall apart, which is something we'll explore uh, very soon. Well, David, the Luddites showed up on the scene in like the early 1800s. And that's a time when the landscape of technological change looked much, much different and probably much more subdued than it does today. I, I don't know if you can even compare our modern technological world to the type of technology the Luddites were wrestling with at that time. And to jump forward 100 years, maybe you've heard of the Triangle Factory Fire. I was actually wandering around New York the other day by NYU, and I walked across this building that had this plaque in front of it, and it mentioned that this was the Triangle Factory building. It's now owned by New York University, but this was the scene of one of the greatest tragedies in fashion history. So in 1912, this factory, mostly filled with women, produced shirts at an industrial scale. There were very strict restrictions on the women working there. They were shirts coming in and out of the factory for trying to steal garments. Their purses were looked through. And when they were in there, their doors were locked so they couldn't sneak out taking textiles with them. Well, the very strict control of these women ended up causing tragedy. The factory caught fire. People couldn't escape because the doors were locked. 60 women jumped from windows to their death. And another 100 women died from flames in the building. This was a national tragedy. People reacted very badly, and it saw the introduction of a lot of new labor and safety policies in the United States, which is one of the only positive things to come from such a tragic event. And many people hoped the industry would learn from this, that things would get better. But here we are, and 101 years later, 1,100 people die in Bangladesh from a factory collapse. What have we learned in that time? The only thing the industry has learned is our violence, our exploitation, our cutbacks, our cut corners, we're going to shift them far away, out of sight, out of mind. Because that's the only way this industry can exist. We cannot create clothes cheap enough for people to buy without cutting corners, without cutting back on wages, without cutting back on safety. Because it's too expensive to create as much clothes as we want without sacrificing something. And in this case, it's people's lives. Maybe this is a conversation more for the what can we do section of this show. But we really need to start thinking, what can we afford when it comes to clothes? We talk about blood diamonds Uh, on the show. We've talked about blood sand, but maybe the clothing that we wear every single day has blood on it. And so we need to look more towards sustainably and responsibly and ethically created clothing. But fact of the matter is that clothing is expensive. And for most of us paying $50 or whatever it might cost in actual labor to produce a shirt, it just isn't realistic. Even if we cut down our wardrobe to just a few items like has happened in most of human history, well... Well, a lot of us just can't afford that. And so we've run into this problem that we find so much in this show as we explore these issues, where the world that we want, the things that we've come to expect and even go so far as to say that we need, well, it's not compatible with a sustainable, ethical world. 
And we have to start asking, why is that the case? Why can't we have clothing products that are made responsibly and be able to afford them? Maybe the answer to that is just our lifestyle itself is unsustainable. David, maybe it's debatable whether or not we can afford the price of these clothing, but there's no doubt that we cannot afford the cost of this industry. And last week, we talked about geoengineering solutions to climate change and how silly and ridiculous many of those ideas are. The only solution really to possibly mitigating climate change is to stop burning fossil fuels. But I'll be the first to admit that that's not going to happen, certainly not overnight. And there are many things we have to use energy for. Alternative sources of fuel like solar panels, for instance, they require fossil fuels to manufacture and transport. So what I'm trying to say is that the future includes fossil fuels to some extent, no matter what. And this raises a very important question in the context of this topic. We are facing an existential crisis on the heels of this climate change. We are facing critical shortages in so many vital resources, like the ones that go into our food system. In this context, does it make sense? Is there any sense at all in using up what little resources we have left? Soil, fertilizer, water, oil, and destroying the world in the process, all for the sake of cheap, disposable t-shirts. Is that what we're willing to throw everything away for? Really? Well, when you put it like that, it seems pretty obvious. But I think you forget, I'm chasing profit. Yeah, and, and that is why apparently it's not so obvious to many, David. This lack of attention to this very basic question is something that I found so surprising. So some of the facts regarding labor and resource use in this episode came from a 72-page report by the Boston Consulting Group in which they, along with a fashion industry group, discuss these problems. They say, oh no, we are running out of resources. Oh no, we have overshot the Earth's capacity to sustain ourselves. And oh no, there's too much pollution. People all over the world are paid next to nothing. But what is their conclusion? They say, essentially, well, the industry is on track to grow by 60% over the next 13 years, and there are big opportunities for increased profitability by tending to some of these concerns. <laughs> you kind of have to stop and think about the level of cognitive dissonance going on in one of the most respected consulting groups in the world, by the way, to claim that a business is literally destroying the earth and employing slaves, and then in the same breath, suggest increasing profits is what the business should be focused on. But this is the paradox of trying to think ethically and morally while making profit the goal. And it goes back to what you alluded to, David, a couple of weeks ago when you said that nothing is profitable. Profit is a surplus. It must come from somewhere. It is extracted. When you extract something, there is a consequence. There is a cost. And like they say in economics, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, when you experience a profit by underpaying a worker, you didn't create wealth out of thin air. You took it from the ground. You extracted it from the ground of that worker's health, the worker's ability to feed herself, educate her children. And even in strict economic terms, that has a cost that matches the extracted surplus. It's the cost of a less educated people, the cost of cleaning the toxins from drinking water sources that workers drink. Or more realistically, since the water never gets cleaned, it's the cost of her health bill that must be paid from somewhere, either from her own pocket, society, her family or the undertaker that buries her dead body. Defenders of this system and of globalization broadly will say something like, sweatshop provide poor people with better options than their alternatives would be. 
Even the World Bank, the supposed arbiter of what constitutes poverty in our world, i.e. whether you make give or take $2 a day or not, they wrote a report in which they not only defend the existence of slums, but say that the growth of slums is a sign of economic progress. Because for some reason, a subsistence farmer who can live off the land, cultivate enough food or livestock to support himself and their family, and live as part of a local community but makes no money, is worse off than a woman living in open sewage on the outskirts of a city, not able to provide education or food for her kids, but makes $2 a day pedaling tourists around on a bicycle for 12 hours, or working 18 hours in a sweatshop. I know millionaires in the United States who consider it a luxury to retire to a simple way of life on a small farm, and you're telling me that that same lifestyle in a quote, developing country, is more deplorable than sleeping in a six foot by six foot scrap metal cage? You're either delusional or disingenuous, especially since the institutions that take this position claim that ending poverty is their mission. If you would just be honest and say that you're looking to get rich off the backs of others, well, maybe then I would be more inclined to believe you. But David, maybe this is why we have to fundamentally change the way we view the world and the way we track and measure so-called progress. Because economic growth has proven itself to be an unworthy candidate for that. For whatever economic growth we've experienced in the past 100 years or more, ecological destruction has only gotten worse. The exploitation of women has gotten worse. The practice of slavery has expanded. The ability for people to sustain themselves and their communities across the globe has plummeted. So if our economic models are telling us that we are improving, those models are seriously broken. Actually, David, I studied finance in college, and the way I view the world has really shifted dramatically, uh, certainly since then, but even in just the last year because of some of these realities. Before, I was interested in those economic metrics, things like GDP. But today, there's only one thing that matters to me anymore, and that's this. How are the lives of those on the very bottom impacted? How is the environment at the most heavily stressed locality impacted? Because I think those two perspectives tell you so much, not just about the sustainability of our practices, but the, quote, progress being made and all the values that should actually matter to the human experience. What we tolerate at the individual and local scale only gets exploded out to the large scale. If a company and its consumers are willing to tolerate a t-shirt at the expense of human life, what else will be tolerated? So now if you tell me you've created a fantastic product and everyone loves it and it improves efficiencies in X and Y areas, but you can't create that product without enslaving someone, you can't create that product without destroying the drinking water of a distant village, then I think your product is garbage, worse than garbage, and we should reject it. We shouldn't support it in any way. But the only way to get to the point where we actually can do that is to replace these flawed economic metrics for measuring progress things like growth, GDP, how many people live on $2 a day, and start measuring progress in terms of human dignity, equality, fairness, sustainability, and environmental health. This is something we've mentioned briefly in the past, and I want to explore in much more detail going forward. But this urge to quantify everything has really had a huge detrimental effect on society. And to be fair, a lot of it is motivated by the fact that measuring progress is hard. And so looking at simple metrics like money earned, GDP, the Gini coefficient is one way to try and track the consequences of actions in a metric that can be easily graphed. But what are we really trying to look at here? Maybe things like happiness, satisfaction in life, whether you go home every night with food in your stomach. 
whether you have roof over your head, power, the things that you need to live a comfortable, satisfying, and enriching life. Those things aren't as easily measured, tracked, quantified, and so they're swept under the rug. And we get these useless metrics that are easy to lie, easy to manipulate statistics with instead. And the sooner we can move away from them, the better off we'll all be in the long run. Maybe there's one way to make it easier to track these changes. Currently, we put too much emphasis in our modern technologically savvy world on improving things at the margins and things like efficiencies through tech innovation, when instead, maybe we should be concerned with aggregates and cumulatives. So we applaud when tech improvements make a car 10% more fuel efficient. But if total car emissions are rising, nothing has improved. In fact, it's getting worse in terms of our global climate change. But see, this is the paradox of growth. If you can't question the fundamental need to grow, you will never measure the right thing. And so first, we have to accept the fact that some of these industries need to degrow, maybe even be dismantled. In the fashion industry, for example, this means we don't praise them in the event they find a better way of cultivating cotton while still consuming more agricultural land. No, we should demand that total land use for the industry declines, that total water consumption declines, that worker wages increase to living standards. And if the industry can figure out how to do that and still produce clothing, then more power to them. Maybe that type of pressure would actually lead to the type of technological innovations that we really need. But ultimately, if the industry cannot achieve those things, then their current methods are not actually profitable in the first place. And we should not tolerate the extraction of our environment and our health and our people for the benefit of the t-shirt company, CEO, shareholders, and other financial stakeholders. Those are beautiful words, Daniel. And it might sound impossible at first listen, but I truly believe that something like this is possible. And more than that is necessary for the continued success of humanity as a whole. So we've sort of started already transitioning into this what can we do component of it. And while we've discussed some of our more radical ideas about this, there are a couple practical things that we really think are important in addressing many of these problems that we touched on in this episode. And a lot of these problems do need to be fixed at the industry level, but there are a couple things that we can do as consumers. And one of those first things are, if you can afford it, buy less clothes, buy better clothes, and buy clothes responsibly. This means skipping those $5, $7 t-shirts that I know my drawers are filled with, and instead looking for something that is produced ethically and sustainably. Perhaps a little bit more expensive, but one that you can wear for much longer. I think the point you made, David, about buying less clothing, I think that is ultimately the most important thing. Whether or not you're buying from a quote-unquote sustainable company, Buying less clothing is the only way to reduce that cumulative, that aggregate impact on the environment, that impact on human labor. It is the pressure to produce so much clothing that has driven factories to these deplorable conditions. That's right. We need to degrow this fashion industry. And to do that, we need to buy less stuff. And of course, that means we're going to have to buy better stuff too, because if we're just buying less than throwing it out when it breaks, well, we're just back in the same situation we were before. But buying less, buying better clothes that last longer, that is one of the biggest things that we can do. Reducing the needs of input in terms of agricultural production, that's the pesticides, that's the water, as well as dyes, chemicals, and then the actual labor going into this. Every piece of clothing that we don't buy has a huge effect on reducing the negative impact that we have on Earth and on other people's lives, much more so than buying a lot of sustainable or ethically produced clothes, which is something that we should try and do anyway, but the important thing is just buy less. But in terms of those inputs, a 
lot of that starts with the design process. So if you are in the fashion industry and you're a designer, we need more awareness among designers about how these clothes end up getting made, depending on the fibers that are chosen, depending on the dyes used and the materials involved. Because this is going to affect the raw material production. It's going to affect the cost needs in terms of these factories. And it will also determine how the consumer uses it, whether it's more durable or whether they're going to need to throw it out after a couple of weeks of use. In the same vein, we need to shift to better materials. Organic cotton can have a quarter of the environmental impact of traditional cotton. And some natural fibers like flax or hemp may be more biodegradable. But again, it's not enough to say how can we grow the industry while switching to better practice, but shifting these better materials while scaling back and even dismantling much of the industry itself. Currently, there's very little accountability in the fashion industry. There are very few organizations watching and putting pressure on these companies. There's little regulation and little demand from consumers for a change to take place. So all of these areas need more attention. One of the biggest things you can do in this area is purchasing clothes from nations that you know are much more strict on labor practices. That means if you're in the United States, maybe buying American-made clothing in other countries the same. But remember, that's not a cure-all. There's sweatshops in every nation. That made in Italy tag doesn't mean it's made by well-paid Italians. But in many cities, there are huge hidden sweatshops staffed with Chinese laborers or other people. So you need to be conscious of this. Look around as much as you can and maybe spend a little time researching a manufacturer or piece of clothing before you purchase it. And I know that's a lot to lay on people, but it is something important that we need to be thinking about. But again, David, if that's too complicated, if that's too hard, just buy less. And I do want to add, as we're closing out this show, that we are not against the fashion industry itself, just the practices of it. There's nothing wrong with clothes as an expression of who you are, of the artistic merits of it. In fact, we encourage this exploration. There's a lot of great things in the fashion industry, like their IP law, which is something I can't wait to talk about in future episodes. But the way the industry is done, the needs that drive it to act in these ways, these are the problems, these are the issues, and these are what we are talking about fixing. And I mean, if we want to get really practical, maybe we should shift to a nudist style of humanity. That might be the easiest solution here. Hold up, David. I got to hit the gym. <laughs> um, we got to get that, that beach body going. I'm not ready for that. I'm go. Everybody, ready. start working out now. So when we all switch to uh, nudism, we'll be ready to go. Well, that's a lot to think about. And uh, hopefully you have some uh, not-so-scarring images on your mind. If you want to learn more about any of the topics we've covered, read that massive 72-page report we mentioned, or read a full transcript of this episode, you can do that at our website ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these shows possible, and we will never use ads to support this show, and we will never purchase ads, as effective as that might be, to clutter your news feeds. So if you like this show and you would like us to keep going, you can support us by sharing us with a friend and giving us a review. Also, we have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. And we encourage you to send us your thoughts, positive or negative. We're going to read it. You can also find us on your favorite social network at Ashes Ashes Cast. Next week, we've got a really great show on a big topic that spans a lot of what we've been talking about across this show so far. So we hope you'll tune in for that. Until then, though, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye bye.